Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Sherrill. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. Uh, just a few quick things. In every other chair, when you walked in, there was this card right here. This is a Connect card. We'd love for you, please, to take a moment and fill that out. Let us know who you are. It's just uh, your name and email. It would be fine just so I can reach out to you and say hello. Um, if you need to update some information, that would be great. There's a place for prayer requests. There's a, play, a place to put praise reports. We want to hear both those things. We want to pray for you. And because our church name is Declaration, we declare the mighty acts of God. Amen. So we want to be able to celebrate all that God is doing on this Resurrection Week um, in us, with us, for us, through us. We love that. We, so we want to hear about that. Also, um, there's also a place of, where you can put things that you might be interested in in the church as well as, as the Lord is speaking to you. He may be asking you to take a next step, and that could look like a, a lot of different things. It might be a step towards salvation for the first time that you would surrender your life to the Lord Christ. Man, I, I would be so thrilled to see some of you step into the kingdom for the very first time this morning. Wouldn't that be amazing? be awesome. So there's a place for you to put things like that. Um, maybe the next step is for you to join this church family. Man, we want you in this family, unlike some crazy aunts and uncles. We actually want you in this family, all right? That was a lot funnier in my head. Um, and so, uh, you know, I know next, next Sunday, beginning next Sunday at 1030, right down this hallway, room 114, I believe, we're going to have Growth Track 101. That's the place where if you want to just know, okay, what is it that makes Declaration Church tick? What, what is it about this place? You know, how can I learn how to get a, to be a part of it, to serve, and all those good things? How do we give? All that stuff. Man, Growth Track's for you. So we love to invite you to be part of that. If you do feel led to make that Easter offering today, to be a part of worship through giving, you can do that in one of the gift boxes out here in the lobby. Um, you can go to declaration.org or declaration.info, or you can text Declaration Church, all one word, to 77977 and just begin that journey of generosity right there. Sow into the kingdom and watch God bless you. Amen? I believe it's part of our worship. That's what a disciple does, is he realizes everything is from the Lord, and I'm going to give it back to him and watch him use it in powerful ways and also take care of you in the process. It's the only thing that God says, test me on this and watch what I'm going to do. And so I want to encourage you in that on this Resurrection Sunday. Okay, I'm going to start this way, and I'm going to see how many of you know what to say. All right, here we go. Ready? Hallelujah, Christ is risen. All right, man. Come on, somebody. That was good. You did good. Turn to a neighbor and say, you did so good. All right, but we're going to do it better. I want you louder and prouder. Right here you go. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Perfect. Well, listen, I believe that six of the most powerful words in all of creation were spoken, um, focused around the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Six words. The first three words are found in the book of John chapter 19, spoken by Christ himself when he said, it is finished. It is finished. In the Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. Now, listen, um, I know for some reason in, in, in the day and age that we live, especially, and I don't, I don't know what started, I'm not here to debate that, but I know for some reason, even in church culture, um, I was almost kind of programmatically raised to think this way, and, and I, I need you to hear my heart on this today, but it's not about do better, try harder, okay? I need you to hear that, church. 
You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be moral enough. You're never going to be rich enough, smart enough, educated enough. Um, you're nev- your kid's never going to be the starting pitcher good enough for that team, okay? I mean, it's just not going to You cannot earn this. You cannot buy this. It's just not. It's not be do good, um, do better, try hard. It's not that. It's, it is finished. And so everybody, just do me a favor right now. I'm going to count to three. Just take a big, deep breath and do a sigh of relief. Ready? One, two, three. <gasps> It's finished. I need you to hear that today. Because immediately what's going to happen is you're going to get in your car and I'll say, your kid's going to be like, I want to go to meet here. I want to go to Christ. And you're like, you know, if I was just a better parent. No, it's really not. It's it is finished. And you can rest in this. It is finished. Tetelestai in the Greek. It's the perfect indicative mood of the Greek verb teleo, meaning to bring an end, to complete, or to accomplish. When Jesus said tetelestai, it is finished, he's saying it's completed. Tetelestai is an accounting term that Greeks would understand. To them, it meant paid in full. So what would happen is in their day and culture, if there was a receipt, a bill of sale, they would write tetelestai on it, and it meant paid in full. The debt is covered. So what Jesus was saying here in a way that all these Romans who just crucified him would understand is he's saying tetelestai, I've just paid your debt in full. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's over. The debt is covered. I've done what I was sent here to do, both in life and in death. I've come to glorify God according to John chapter 17. I've come to seek and save that which was saved, or which was lost according to Luke chapter 19. So I've come to seek and save that which was lost. I came to provide atonement for all who would believe in me, Romans 3. I have finished the work to secure redemption, reconciling a sinful man to holy God. 2 Corinthians, I have finished putting an end to the power of sin and Satan. Somebody needs to hear that today from Hebrews 2. I have put an end to the the true power of sin and Satan. Some of you are wrapped up in bondage. You are, you are completely, you, you feel like that you've just been chained to something for so long. You can't let go of it. Well, get this. Jesus on the cross and because of the resurrection has put an end once and for all to the power that sin or Satan can have over your life. The question is, have you surrendered that sin? Have you given that back to the Lord and laid it back down where it rightfully belongs at the foot of the cross? And here's another good one. 2 Timothy 1. I have accomplished bringing death to death forevermore. We have nothing to fear. Our debt of sin is paid in full, completely, and forever. Those three words, it is finished, change absolutely everything. The second most powerful three words ever spoken were actually said by an angel um, on resurrection morning when speaking to all these women who had came to gather there at the tomb. Three words that I believe will literally change this world forever and ever. Amen. These words would absolutely establish and exalt Jesus over every other form of religion for all time. Not only would these three words prove Jesus to be who exactly he said that he was, claiming that he said that he was, but they would also declare the supremacy and the reign of our almighty God who was and who is and who is to come. He is both the lion and the lamb. These three words were, he has risen. He is risen. It is finished. He is risen. After three days in the grave, he is risen. What does this mean to you? What does resurrection mean to you? How has the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted your life, your journey, your family? The way you think, the way you operate, the way you move, the decisions that you make, the job that you take, how you raise your kids. Has the resurrection impacted your life? 
Okay, so at this point, the disciples, they've had a pretty rough week. They've dealt with a lot in just a few short days, all right? Um, they watched a lot of these things play out, just as Jesus said that they would. I don't know if they didn't believe in what was happening, what was about to happen, what was coming. I don't know, I don't know. But they began to watch all this play out step by step. They watched as they beat Jesus mercilessly. And I want you to just, for just a second, go there in your mind with me. Imagine being there, seeing Jesus beat beyond recognition. Watching him barely be able to shuffle up to that hill that he knew would be his execution. Can you imagine seeing them um, lay him down on, on that beam and, and begin to nail him there to what would be that cross and, and raise him up for all to see. Can you see that in your mind's eye? The pain and the incomparable suffering of what they must have witnessed during those moments. Watching the one that they loved being crucified. By this point, many of the closest to Jesus had scattered. So there were a few still there, some close up, some from a distance. Scripture says they watched from a distance. But they were seeing this. Can you imagine hearing some of those final words that Christ barely got out to speak? And, and I need you to understand this. That it, you know, it's like the way that they would do this, a lot of times it was suffocation that would kill people. It wasn't necessarily the beatings or anything else that got there. It was suffocation. They would have to lift up. They would put those nails right, not, but right between these bones to, to hold, and they would have to lift up to take an air and then just fall back down. So can you imagine as Jesus would lift himself up on those, putting all, bearing his weight on those nails and, and saying words like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Saying words like, my God, why have you forsaken me? Saying words like, tetelestai, it is finished. Or into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus, at that moment, finally gives up his spirit and dies. See, many things they, they, they would think and question, well, gosh, if this, if this was surely the son of God, I mean, couldn't he call angels? Down? Couldn't he get him up off the cross? I mean, couldn't he, he could have done something if he was who he claimed to be. I would imagine at that dark point in history, Satan and the minions of hell must have had this malicious celebration happening, sadly, along with some of the religious leaders of the day and the government officials. He dies. So can you imagine being there when Jesus finally gave up his spirit, took that last breath? Scripture says the sky grew completely dark in the middle of the day. The earth began to violently shake as he let out his final breath. It says that the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom. We talked about this last week. Veil being 60 feet high and four feet wide tore from top to bottom when Jesus says it is finished. The barrier between God and man was now gone forever, freeing mankind to have full access and privilege to God at any time. And I wonder, in that moment, as the sky grew dark, and as, as we'll get into a little bit more of it in a minute, but as this takes place, the veil tears, I wonder if Satan, at that moment, began to wonder. For just a second, he thought he had victory. But now? Now what? And I wonder how many people at that moment thought, man, we might have just really messed this up something bad. <laughs> right? So Jesus dies, his family, his followers, some are close by. They, you know, 
typically when they would crucify someone, it was a common criminal. So usually what would happen is um, they would either just leave them on the, on the cross or they would take them down and throw them in a, a hole back behind it and just let the animals have them with no ceremony, with zero care. This was one more way of punishment and just ambivalence to the humanity of that person. It's one more final humiliation of crucifixion, but not with Jesus. See, with Jesus, Joseph goes to Pilate and asks permission. This is ironic too. Joseph going to Pilate, you'll see why. He asked permission for the body of Jesus. According to Deuteronomy 21, Jewish tradition was that, that no dead body could be left out in the open overnight. So Joseph quickly goes to Pilate, um, understanding that well, often, even in the cruelty of the Romans, they would most likely, you know, for those that they have conquered, they would at least try to, to say, yeah, okay, we'll let you do your tradition do whatever it is you want to do. And, and so there's Joseph and Pilate. Pilate's surprised that Jesus is already dead so quickly, and, but reluctant to give Joseph permission to take his body, but he does. They take him off the cross, they wash him, they, they prepare his body for burial, and the Sabbath is upon him. So they take him to a place nearby, Joseph's tomb. Joseph, he's an interesting guy, and this is the irony, is that Joseph is an honored member of that group that we talked about last weekend, the Sanhedrin, the 60 or 70 old dudes, the Supreme Court of the religious law. And here's Joseph. He believes in Jesus now. And he's going to put him in his family tomb. Now, by putting Jesus in this tomb, and not by just leaving him on the cross or throwing him into a pit for the animals, this is a pretty big thing. It's a big deal. It has special significance, not only for his followers, but also for his enemies. I want you to think about the mood and the emotion in that moment as all that took place. How they must have felt. How final everything must have felt. I mean, all hope must have been completely, entirely lost. The joy that was the beginning of the week on Palm Sunday had escalated into the most horrific outcome imaginable, followed by this deep, Immense grief. What they do in order to kind of protect themselves a bit, you'll see, is they roll this big stone in front of the entrance of that tomb. And, um, and because of Pilate's reluctance, he sends these guards to not only guard it, but to seal that stone to keep watch over it. Um, they don't want anybody to do anything, to mess with it, you know. So there's Pilate, there's the priest, and there's the Pharisees, and they all want to ensure that Jesus would not come back to life just as he said he would, or they want to make sure that maybe somebody would not steal his body, inciting people to believe that he had come back to life. Now, I want you to understand something about Jewish tradition because it's very important that Jesus was in that tomb for three days. Jewish tradition basically says that a person's soul and spirit remains within that body for three days. But after three days, the soul and spirit depart. So if Jesus had resurrected the day of or the day after then basically it would have been really easy for people to argue, oh, no, 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 he wasn't really dead, or or maybe they resuscitated him. He wasn't dead. They just... This is exactly also why Jesus... Do you remember John chapter 11? I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. John chapter 11, when Jesus goes to resurrect Lazarus, he he gets word, hey, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. Come and help. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm going to hang out for a couple days, and then we'll go. And they're all kind of like, uh, okay. Well, then on the way, 
the sisters of Lazarus meet Jesus on the road. And they're like, hey, yo, if you had been here, he would not have died. Where were you, right? He had been dead for three days. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went, when he went to do that. He was not only pointing to something greater of his power, but he was also pointing in a prophetic way to something more to come. Do you see that? If Lazarus had come back before those three days, then the miracle would not have been so miraculous. Another reason why it was important for Jesus to be in the tomb for three days is to fulfill biblical prophecy. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Matthew 27, John chapter 2. Jesus had personally made some claims that he would be dead for three days. Once again, to bring this irrefutable evidence that he was indeed who he said that he was. So three days were very important. So imagine, there they are, the tomb, the guards are there. The guards are at the tomb. They're ensuring that no one's going to steal the body. They're, they're ensuring that the, the dude's not going to wake up like some crazy Michael Jackson video. I mean, it, he's gone. And here comes the Sabbath. Jesus is in the tomb. I wonder what that must have, what, what was that day? What were those days like for his followers? What were those days like for Mary Magdalene or any other Mary? Mary, there was a lot of Marys in these stories, Right? What was that like? How must they, I mean, gosh, you know, I'm sure that they were still somewhat in shock from all that their eyes had seen. All that they had witnessed. I'm sure that even in the context of the whole time that they had spent with Jesus, he had said some things. He had tried to tell them what was going to happen. He had tried to warn them what was about to take place. But just in Jesus' form, maybe they, maybe they just thought, well, that's just Jesus telling those stories again, those parables. Maybe it's a metaphor for something else. Who knows, right? I mean, just doing what he always did, telling those stories. But now, now they're facing this reality, this final feeling, this, this he's completely gone. He's gone. Like, he's gone. I wonder if they had a lot of trouble sleeping for those nights. I wonder if, if replaying the imagery of all that they had seen just kept going over and over and over in their mind. But watch this. Then came Sunday. Matthew 28. Verse 1, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. I love Matthew's account of this. So in my imagination, when I read this, here's what I see. I see the Marys. They're going to finish what they started in the proper burial. So at the break of dawn, they take off to the tomb. And they're heading there. Why? Because they just want to be with him. They just want to be close to him. They know that he's gone, but they just want to be near him again. Listen, I remember in 1998 when my dad passed away. It was a weird deal during those first few days before we buried him. And I, 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 I can't tell you how many times I wondered, is this strange? I just want to go to the funeral home. I just want to go into the room where his body is. I just want to be, I just, I, is it even weirder? I just want to touch him. 
And so this, that's, the, that's the feeling that I got when I was reading that Mary, they, they go there to the tomb. They just want to be close. And here's the truth of the matter with my dad. I have the resurrection that gives me hope of my dad's redemption. I know where my dad is because of his surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ and because of his relationship with Jesus and his love for God. I have the hope that I will see my dad again. But here's Mary Magdalene, the one who Jesus had freed from seven demons. I mean, he gave her absolute healing. Her love and gratitude for Jesus was so deep. And and I'm sure that they were trying so hard to reconcile everything that they had seen and heard and felt, the deepest grief, the anguish of loss, the pain of even this. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the hope of resurrection at that moment. They didn't have the the hopeful and eternal implications that would come from it at that moment. So they're just journeying to the tomb where Jesus' body is supposed to be. Their minds silently racing, their hearts shattered, but rapidly beating. He's really gone. And here we are, what now? He's gone, but then suddenly, much like the sounds of that feeling of the ground beginning to shake and give way, the convulsing of the earthquake that happened, the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit and died, here it happens again. It begins to shake and rumble. This is why I love Matthew's account, because the first time that happened, according to Matthew 27, it says this, scripture says that at that moment, when the sky grows dark and the earth begins to shake, rocks literally split in half, tombs begin to open, and bodies begin to be raised from the dead, foreshadowing of things to come. Talk about a supernatural moment in the history of creation. But this time, when the earthquake shakes, it's another supernatural moment, but it's different. It's a supernatural breaking of the atmosphere, introducing this massive angel into the storyline, into our reality, approaching the tomb where both these Marys are, and he grabs the stone and he rolls it away. He rolls the stone away if it's nothing. I need you to understand, this stone is it's like a cork-shaped type, um, you know, uh, squared off, very large, heavy rock stone. Some studies would say that it would have been four to six feet in diameter and over one one foot thick. It would weigh 2,000 to 4,000 pounds or one to two tons. That's a little heavy. I don't know if I can get it by myself. I might need some help, right? Um, But this angel just, nothing. It's nothing. So this supernatural presence moves this stone like it's absolutely nothing. And scripture goes on to describe in Matthew 28, verse three, the angel's appearance was like lightning. His robe was white as snow. The guards were so shaken for fear of him that they just fall out as if they're dead men. And the angels begin to tell the women, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because I know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. And I love this verse six. It says, for he's not here. He's been resurrected just as he said. Come and see where he lay. He's not here. He, he did just like he said he would. Come, come see, come see, right? He did exactly what he said. John chapter two. Remember when Jesus said this and people probably thought, what are you talking about? Because he said, John chapter two, verse 19, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. So these guys are going, whoa, time out, man. It took 46 years to build this temple. Jesus was not talking about a building. He was talking about his body. And these guys, these angels are saying, he did just as he said that he would do. Come and see, come and see, come and see. Verse seven, 
Then go quickly tell the disciples, he's been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I've told you. So quickly departing from the tomb with fear and with great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. It was the disciples and probably some other followers that were gathered there. They ran as fast as they could. I love that response. I have this picture um, of, of them just kind of, you know, just getting up and just stumbling all over the place, trying to get out of there really fast, partly because it's probably a little terrifying seeing this angelic, you know, supernatural being that just caused the earth to shake, and he's having a conversation with you, and then he's like, hey, you go, go and tell that, and so he's like, yeah, I'm out, right? I'm gone. That was funny in my head. Um, <laughs> tell that. Mark, Mark's account in 16, same story. It just basically says, he says, don't be alarmed in verse 6. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's been resurrected. He's not here. Look, see the place where we've laid him. But then go tell the disciples and tell Peter and the followers, he's going to go ahead of you to Galilee. You're going to see him just as I told you. So they went out. They started running from the tomb because, I love it, trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. Three things I want you to see right here. Number one, resurrection invites us to come and see. Resurrection invites us to come and see. I, you know, I, in doing ministry for 20 years, I've met so many people who are so satisfied. Imagine the most amazing, luxurious resort pool that you've ever laid eyes on in the middle of Hawaii. Are you there with me? I've seen so many believers who are so satisfied to just kind of put their toe in the water and hang out there when it comes to Jesus. It's nice. It's nice. And they're saying, hey, look, because of this, come and see. Taste and see the goodness that's here. Listen, friend, family, come taste and see the goodness of your Father God and what he's done through Jesus Christ on your behalf. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His resurrection provides a promise of your redemption and your freedom, your reconciliation to God. Come and see, but don't just be a spectator. Don't just be satisfied to stick your toe in the church religious water. Don't do that. Don't be a spectator. Surrender. Surrender to him. Believe and receive the gift that he's given you of resurrection. God's greatest gift to you is this cross, solidified by the resurrection. He died so that you could live. Come and see. Come and see. Ask the Lord to open the eyes of your heart, to give you clean hands and pure hearts, just like Matthew 5 says, so that you might see God. That's my prayer for all of us this morning. His resurrection invites us to intimacy. Come and see. The second thing that the resurrection invites us to is to go and tell. Go and tell. We have the best news possible. The greatest news imaginable is, is, is ours to tell, ours to share. His resurrection changes everything. It will change the life of that addict. It will change the life of that one who's been so caught up in so much stuff. They feel like there's no hope. They feel like that, that they've gone too far. It will immediately change for them. When they come and see, the resurrection changes everything. We have the cure for the incurable. We have the hope for the hopeless. So go and tell everyone, love sent Jesus to the cross. It has got to send us across the street to tell our neighbors and our friends and our family. We have the best news possible, church. Go and tell. The third thing the resurrection invites us, the resurrection of Jesus releases joy. It releases joy. This is the thing 
that you might not be able to articulate with human understanding or finite vocabulary. It's the thing that is inside of you that gives you so much hope and security in the depths of darkness, in the worst moment, the darkest night of the soul, in those moments where the circumstance is so grievous that you don't even know how you're gonna take another step, but somehow, because of Jesus, you have this this knowledge, this security, this confidence that everything is going to be okay somehow. The resurrection releases joy. Let's look at the Luke account in chapter 24. I love Luke's um, story as he talks about some things that happened after the resurrection. Verse 13, look what it says. The same day, two guys, they're on their way from this village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they're, they're talking to each other about all the things that had been taking place, like all these things that they had seen and heard about, the things that they had happened. And while they're, you know, while they're talking, they're discussing, they're arguing, all of a sudden, Jesus walks up and joins them on this journey on this path, and they just start having a conversation, right? Verse 15, 16 says, they were prevented from recognizing him at that moment. Verse 17, they ask him, or Jesus says, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And, and they stopped, and, they, and it says they look discouraged. One man, Cleopas, answers him. He says, are you the only guy in Jerusalem right now that has no clue of what's been going on? Like, where you been, right? Don't you get updates on your phone? TMZ much? Anything? I mean, hello? A few of you. Good. Um, they say, man. So haven't you heard how our chief priests, how our leaders, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and then they crucified him? They crucified him. We were hoping that he was the one who was about to come and redeem Israel, they said. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have taken place. They're saying, hey, look, this guy was powerful. We had heard about him. We knew about him. We were holding out hope that he was indeed our Messiah. But now it's been three days since he's been gone. Jewish culture, remember, believes about what they believe about three days. But then they said, but listen to what happened in 22. They said, some women from our group, man, they astounded us because they arrived early at the tomb. They didn't find his body. And then they came and started telling all of us. They give us report of these visions that they saw, these angels, that Jesus was alive. He was alive. Some of those who were with us, you know, they went to the tomb and they found it just as those women had said. They didn't see him though. And then Jesus says, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Messiah would suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, begins to interpret. He just begins to run down story by story all of the things concerning himself according to the scriptures. (laughs) All of these things, as if he's saying, guys, can you not see this? Do you not recognize me? So they keep going. They keep talking. Verse 28, they came near a village where they're going to hang out. Um, and Jesus gives them the impression he's going to keep going. So they're like, hey, no, no, it's kind of late. Stay with us. Come hang out with us. And then verse 30 happens. And I love it because it says this. It says, it was as he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed and broke it, and they gave it to him. This was the moment. This was when they saw him. This is it. It says, then their eyes were open, verse 31, and they recognized him. But in that moment, he disappeared from their sight. Understand, obviously, they have seen this before. They had obviously been with Jesus before when he had done this, when he had taken the bread and broken it. He had provided for them before. He had shared a meal with them at one time. They recognized him. Now they finally see it. They recognize him. They didn't see him as they were walking. They didn't see him as they were talking. They didn't just look at him and know or believe that it was him. I mean, after all, in their minds, yeah, they had heard what had happened, but they had seen the crucifixion, yada, yada, yada. But now 
They can believe for themselves. This is absolute reality, which means truth. It's reality. He's back from the dead. All he said has come to pass. It's true. Verse 32. Then they said to each other, I love this. Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Wasn't it enough listening to him then? Why didn't we see it before? Church, let me ask you some questions that I was asking myself this week, all right? I wonder how many times in our lives that we have encountered God on our path of our life that he's called us to and we haven't recognized him. I wonder how many times that he's walked with us and he's spoken to us and with us. He's proven himself over and over and over and we continue to live as if the resurrection never even really happened. As if we can't or if we don't have relationship with him. Are we looking for him? Are we listening for him? Would we recognize his voice if he spoke? Would we know him? Would we believe him? So back to Mary Magdalene, Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb. We've established that. The stones rolled away. They didn't find Jesus. The men were terrified. And in verse 5, the angel asks a question that is so profound and so important if, I didn't, if you didn't hear anything today, I want you to hear this. You ready? Here's what he said. The angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Why are you here? Why are you at the grave? And he's gone. <laughs> why are you searching for life among death? He's not here. He's risen just like he said he would. Remember? Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee? Verse 7. Remember when he said, it's necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of men, crucified, rise on the third day. And then, verse 8, then they remembered the words of Jesus. What an incredible question. Church, listen. Are you looking for living among the dead? Are you looking for life in dead places? How many times have we gone searching for life by seeking it out in dead places and things? We profess to know Jesus, but in our idolatry and our unbelief, we bow at so many undeserving and unanswering altars. Searching for true, abundant, eternal life, but settling for a temporary, momentary, fleeting time of maybe satisfaction for a second. I don't we think it'll fill us. We think that it'll fix us, make us feel better about our situation, our circumstance. But it just leads to death. See, most of the time, instead of resurrection, we look for resuscitation. Resuscitation suggests that, man, um, I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not really dead, but I, 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 get me back, get me back, get me back. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discussed our searching for life among dead things. He said, and out of our hopeless attempts have come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, pornography, classes, empires, racism, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Our thirst was created for eternity, yet we reach so often for a drink of the temporary. It will not satisfy us if it is not living water. Why do we search for the living among the dead? Why do we settle 
for a moment of resuscitation. Why do we do this when we can have resurrection? Now, resurrection speaks to something totally different. Without a death, there is no resurrection. And I believe that when we come to the Lord, we come and we die to self. We die to our agenda. We die to our ability. We die to even potentially our fleshly dreams that aren't God dreams in the first place. We die to all those things. We die to our supposed rights or, or our you know, entitlements. Even, I mean, we just die. We die to self. To be resurrected in life. We can be resurrected today. Why? Because it is finished and he has risen. We can be resurrected today. Because it is finished and he has risen, we can know God. We can be truly alive. We can be forgiven and free. We can be saved. We can know grace. We can have peace. We can understand purpose. We can have hope. Because of it is finished and because of it he has risen, we can have healing. Because of it is finished and because of he has risen, we can know joy in the darkest night of the soul. Even in the midst of pain, circumstance, suffering, we can have joy. Because it is finished and he is risen, we can be assured. We can finally be confident that we can rest. We can look forward to a day of no more pain, no struggle, no suffering, no hurt, no loss, no grief, no sadness. I think C.S. Lewis once said that he will come and make everything sad unsad. I love that. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can now boldly say, greater is he that is in me than any circumstance that may confront me, than any season of suffering that may try to suffocate me, or any difficulty that might try to distract me. God hears me, God sees me, God knows me. And because of resurrection, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, man, this should make you jump for joy. The same power that raised him from the dead lives within you. Oh, believer, oh, one who has surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and invited me to take over he's placed his spirit within you that's power somebody come on somebody and we know that one day we will forever live in the fullness of joy and hope realize that our faith will be made sight you know what here's the last reason this morning i want to give some of you that have been through the heartbreaking loss and pain the grief of losing loved ones people who knew christ Saints who've gone before us, our redemption promises reunion. Resurrection promises reunion. 1 Thessalonians 4, reunion with the Father and reunion with those loved ones of faith who have gone before us. They'll put that scripture up so you can see it there. See, I have hope, church. I have hope I'm going to see my dad again one day. I have hope I'm going to see my mother-in-law again one day. That cancer is not what defined her. Because Jesus came and put a death to death. I have hope that one day I'm going to see my grandparents again. And I'm going to meet little nieces or nephews who went on to be with the Lord. I have hope. And you can have this same hope today as well. Placing your faith and your trust and your belief in the one who cried out, it is finished on your behalf, but who has also risen in resurrected power. He wants you to be joined with him in all things, in life, in death, in resurrection, Romans 6, 5, and 8. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of a death, 
we will also certainly be joined with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 8, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. As we close this morning, I'm going to invite the team to come back up. And I'm going to end the way we began with these questions right here. How has the resurrection impacted your life? Has the resurrection impacted your life? Are you walking with the assurance of eternity and the enjoyment of abundance? If not, today is your day. Today is your day. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Come and see. Come to him. Invite him into your life. Embrace the cross today. Come and find life. Embrace resurrection. Die to self. See, when Jesus says, it is finished, we have to get to the end of ourselves and say, we're finished. I'm finished. I can't do it anymore. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not moral enough. It's only the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross and the exclamation point of the resurrection that invites us to eternal and abundant life and hope and peace and rest and joy and love unconditional. Would you close your eyes with me and stand to your feet for just a second? I'm just going to remind you of Romans 10 as we stand. Verse 13. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Where are you today with all this information? Man, don't be satisfied to put your toe in living water. Jump in. Go all in. Jump in. Dive into the deepest place with God. Embrace the cross this morning. You have a King Jesus who is all-powerful because of this very moment in history. He has risen. Is he worthy of your worship and your, your love? Is he worthy of your time and, and every aspect of your life? Is he worthy of you embracing the cross and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you finished it, you've accomplished it, and I'm finished too. I'm tired of running in vain. I'm tired of trying to go at this on my own. I'm, I'm tired of trying to reconcile the, the meaning of life with science and with analytics and with logic and with reason. I, I'm going to embrace faith in the cross and just believe that there's something more to this life than just breathing and existing. But it's, it's breathing and living for purpose because I was created on purpose because you loved me and you love me still. You loved me then. You loved me enough to take the cross and you love me enough today to give me this opportunity to run and embrace the cross and thank you for the sacrifice, your life for mine, that I would also be raised to walk in a resurrected power, something that I don't even fully understand and that's okay. God, teach me. Show me. I want to walk alive. I want my family to feel alive. I want to lead my family out of being alive and not just the normal day-to-day. -day. I'm tired, God. I'm finished. I need you. This morning, if you need resurrection, you've never invited Jesus Christ really into your life. You've played church. You've been religious. You've done good things. You're a moral person. You give to charity. That's incredible. Praise God for your sacrifice. But it's not enough. If you need surrender, if you need Jesus, and you've really never surrendered wholeheartedly to him, would you simply just slip a hand up so I can see who I'm praying for this morning? Will you? Anybody? 
I'm coming to Jesus today. I need him. I'm laying down pride. I can't do it anymore. I'm tired. I can't do it anymore. I don't want to be alone. I need help. Anybody, I see you. Anybody else? I see you. Okay. Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. There's no formula to this. It's just you crying out, God, save me. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for resurrection. I don't fully understand it right now, God, and that's okay. I just want you. Teach me. Walk with me. I remember being just like you, standing in a room just like this, in a moment just like this, and saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for forgiving me. That you could forgive me is overwhelming. Thank you for dying in my place. And thank you for establishing that you are king of all, Jesus, through your resurrection. I want to follow you. I remember praying this and it worked. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare him to the nations. For more podcasts and teachings, visit declaration.org slash podcast.